Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. We have a fantastic guest for you today. I didn't actually think when I was smaller, I was watching TV, I was watching the Thunderbirds. I didn't think I'd be sitting here chatting to a real Thunderbird. We have Major Ryan Bodenheimer. Ryan, welcome on. How are you? Mikey, I'm great, brother. Thanks so much for having me. It's as, it's as exciting. Uh, you're a fellow pilot, so to be able to chat and just uh, say hello to all your viewers is super fun for me. It's been, it's amazing having you. So thank you so much for for coming on. And it, it's you're the first. Yeah. Um, I say the first. You're the first American um, display pilot that I've I've had on the podcast, which is amazing. We've we spoke to Sam Eckholm, who was F twenty two, and but he was part of the ground and and support. And um, we spoke to a few Red Arrows pilots who who are UK. So you, yeah, congratulations. You're the first US pilot we have on. Hey, honor to do it. Honor to be it. Sounds like I'm uh, filling some big shoes there with these Red Arrow pilots and all that. Uh, so I'm I'm happy to be here. We're delighted to have you. Ryan, I have to ask everyone who comes on this podcast, where did your interest in aviation come from to get you where you were today? Yeah, so I think you kind of, you probably find this with a lot of pilots where we have a mentor or someone in our family who's been in aviation. So I was very fortunate. My dad was a fighter pilot. So uh, I kind of did the old, uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to do the exact opposite of what my dad wants me to do. You know, I was that little rebellious kid. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to be a doctor, or I think is what I thought. But I can remember a distinct moment. I was sitting an, along a flight line, just having rode my bike with some of my pals along a flight line in Alaska, uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, Ielson Air Force Base. It was evening time uh, and the sun was kind of setting and a four ship of F-16s uh, took the runway two by two and they took off two by two full afterburner takeoffs and they did unrestricted climbs. It was one of the coolest things I've, I've ever seen. Uh, and he's, even as a young guy, you know, probably 12, 13, it sparked something in my heart. And I was like, wow, I need to know more about this. And then the fact that, you know, I'd seen my dad do it. Uh, so all, all these things kind of combined. And then the final moment was uh, when 9-11 happened. I was a junior in high school. And um, I kind of just went back in my, you know, my little kid heart and mind to that passion that I felt for aviation. And now I could also serve my country uh, and contribute. And, you know, whether you agree you know, with the wars and all that, I think that was besides the point. It was more about, hey, my friends are all going to serve. I want to help my friends come back. I'm a patriotic kid. I'm grateful for what I have. So I don't want to confuse people with, you know, uh, patriotism, pride, uh, being grateful for what you have with agreeing to, you know, certain moves made by politicians. It, to me, it's different. So yeah. those things all combined uh, made me just know that it was a no-brainer to go try to be a fighter pilot. And uh, I've, I've always loved adrenaline-filled activities, so snowboarding, uh, that kind of stuff. I've just always loved sports, so it's like, okay, I can use my body, I can use my mind, kind of become one with an aircraft and fly a jet at 500 feet, you know, 500 miles an hour around mountains. I was like, what? Like, what? What else could be cooler than that? Plus the serve your country part. So that's what led me to become an aviator. That's brilliant. And did, did it ever cross your mind to maybe go down the airline route rather than, than the Air Force? But judging by what you've said, it sounds like it's been Air Force true and true. Uh, I, th I think it was just the excitement of it. And uh, I thought the airline route was cool. I thought, you know, that would, that would be a really cool thing to do one day. And I'm actually doing that now. I'm, I'm a commercial ah, okay. pilot as well. Um, but I, I, when I was a young guy, some, there's nothing that really sounds extremely sexy about flying from Austin to Los Angeles, like, <laughs> you know, but it's cool. It, now doing it, I'm like, this is really cool. Uh, the other day I got to fly over the Grand Canyon and, and look down and, 
and see that, I was like, wow, I'm very fortunate, very grateful that I'm, I'm up here. It's amazing. It's different. You know, it's like you're, you're flying this big like bus, you know, just kind of like floating through the sky. So instead of having to be uh, as aware, I think, you know, as in a fighter jet, when every single moment uh, you have to be aware of your flight path, you have to be aware of what's going on. Uh, it's more of a meditative experience, I think. And so as a young guy, I don't think that that was as appealing to me. Okay. That's, uh, I, I get that. Um, do you think that I, I have to ask as well, because I've never actually met anyone who's gone from flying like in, in a display team like yourself to, to flying jets um, or big commercial jets, as to say. Um, did, you find, you, did you find it hard to adapt from doing Mac 2 with your hair on fire to flying 200 and odd passengers? Yeah, I did actually, but maybe not for the reasons you would expect. Um, I think the big thing is just how much freedom you have in a fighter jet to kind of do whatever you want. Um, you know, I think in, you know, here in the United States and, and, and somewhat in Europe, I noticed as well, maybe more so in the United States, it's just the controllers have a little more, um, they give you a little more leeway. They know you're a single okay. cockpit. They know you're, you might, might not have the ability to bust out a whole bunch of pubs. You know, now we, now we have iPads and all that, but um I think it it gives you a little bit of freedom to instead of flying these certain arrivals, like when you go into a busy airport like Chicago, you're flying these stars, these standard terminal arrivals, which are fairly complicated. Uh, but in a fighter jet, you just say, hey, uh, can I get vectors to final? <laughs> and a lot of times they're like, yeah, sure, do whatever. You know, uh, so I think that you kind of get a little bit of a license to kill when you're flying a fighter jet. Um, and not to mention, you know, you're on different radios. So you use a UHF frequency, ultra high frequency radio. So uh, instead of the VHF, the very high frequency uh, or variable high frequency, whatever that stands for. So it's not, there's not a ton of chatter when you're flying a military aircraft, you're on a different, different bandwidth. So the, the calm and the communications of commercial airline flying is, it's busy, you know, and so you got to be, you got to be on it. So I wasn't used to that. And then uh, I think the difference is really like on the ground with a fighter jet. It's not, it's not too complicated. You know, there's a, it's kind of built for a single pilot. A lot of these things are kind of automated. Uh, and so you, the ground ops and all that are pretty simple. Uh, but then when you get airborne, that's when the challenge starts. Now you got to be connected to that jet. You got to be ready to, you know, turn and burn and all that stuff. But you kind of flip that with an airliner, whereas on the ground, there's a lot of prep. There's all these steps. You have to do them exactly correct, you know, and there's not a lot of room for error on the ground. Whereas like in a fighter jet, if you do something that's maybe not exactly perfect, you can get out of that situation with your afterburn. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in a commercial jet, you got to, you know, you don't have that luxury. So you got to be very, very, very methodical, very, very in tune with what's going on on the ground. But then as soon as you take off, it's like, ah, all right, all right, this is chill. You know? So it's just, it's vice versa. It swaps. And so I think that was hard for me to get my mind around um, because I wasn't used to being as intensely focused during the ground ops. To me, that was my time in the fighter jet to breathe and to get ready for the day's mission. Think about, you know, the communications I'm going to use. Think about the different weapons I'm going to be employing. Think about how I'm going to, you know, find jets on my radar, all these different things. But um, on a commercial jet, you know, you, it's, it's different. That's so cool. It's, it's great to hear that, that perspective as well. Um, it, it's like you said, it's two different flying. Like you said, it's, it's, it's swapped vice versa. Whereas um, 
I just thought it would be you going really fast, upside down, pulling G's, and then you go to do a steep turn in a in a seven three or an A three twenty, and it starts shouting bang angle and restricting you to everything. But it's so it's, it's so nice to hear um, your side exactly. Of it. Um, yeah. Did you do any flying prior to when before you went into the Air Force, or what? What did your training look like? Did you find it easy at all? Uh, I did do a little bit. I got a few scholarships when I was in college. I was going through school at the University of Colorado and uh, Denver. Colorado in general, just a very big aviation community there. And so I was able to, to score some pretty sweet scholarships and I flew 182s around the mountains there. I uh, ended up getting my private pilot's license, uh, but uh, I did find it challenging. I mean, uh, it's it's not easy. I think anyone who's stepping into an aircraft, like you know, you stepping into the planes that you fly, there's challenges every day. And I think, you know, as a young, young pilot, it can kind of seem overwhelming. So, you know, if any of your viewers that are watching this are, you know, young pilots and they're like, man, I don't know about this stuff. Well, you know, coming from a Thunderbird pilot, like it's supposed to be challenging and it's not supposed to be natural. That's why there's all these currencies and all these different things that you have to stay up on in aviation because we're not meant, we're not meant to be up there. <laughs> so I think uh, I noticed that early on that it was challenging, but that challenge also drove me back to get better and better and better at it. And it was fun. So I think if you can find fun in the challenges and you can find those challenges as ways to kind of test your metal and show what you're made of, then uh, you, you kind of get it. You kind of get aviation. That's not supposed to be easy. Uh, I remember my first flight after getting my private pilot's license. You know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got my private pilot's license. I'm a big deal. Uh, I took I up think a we've all flight. been there. <laughs> right? Yeah, you feel like, you know, you kind of know everything to a degree. And then you quickly realize you do not. Um, but we, I took up a family friend of mine. He was a, an old uh, U.S. Army colonel, and I had complete electrical failure in the Cessna. So <laughs> every single thing electric, and it failed radios, you know, everything. So the only thing that worked was the engine, essentially. And so um, I'm trying to figure things out. You know, I've got, you know, pubs are exploding as I'm trying to, like, look at different checklists and things like that. Um, and uh, came in and uh, I was going, I was actually flying at the time out of the Air Force Academy. Uh, so it's a really cool little airport they have there. Um, and I was just renting a plane for the day. Uh, but it's, it's fairly busy. Uh, there's, you know, little planes flying around as, as you know, the, the Air Force Academy uh, flying team does their thing. And uh, I remember coming in and all the training shows tells you, you know, what to do when you see like a red light and a green light. And I saw like a flashing green light. I'm like, what does the flashing green light mean? Like, <laughs> just give me a green light or a red light, bro. Um, and so I guess the green light meant like continue or something like that. I'm sure some of your, you know, uh, general aviation fans can, can correct me on what it actually means. But I just remember I was like, okay, I don't see any other planes in front of me. Uh, green, green is good. Even though it's flashing, I'm going to give this a shot. And so I came in and landed and, uh, you know, everybody cleared out of the FBO because they all had heard that this plane just came in, you know, like wild west, not talking to anybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> And the mechanic jumps in because he thinks I just left the battery switch off or bumped the battery switch. But I checked that thing like 25 times in the air to make sure I wasn't an idiot. Uh, so he gets in and he's like, well, yeah, battery failed. Every, every electric failed in this plane. Good job. Uh, and I was just like, whoa, I just had to make that happen. I just had to figure that out. You know, that wasn't necessarily uh, talked a lot about. So that was a challenge I didn't think that I would face. But then I was like, okay, I got to be humble. I got to keep learning. <laughs> so. It's a, I remember when I got my license say about keep learning and stuff, and when I got the firm handshake from the instructor to say, you know what, you've passed, you're signed off. 
um, congratulations on your license to learn. And I was like, well, I went to the boat, so I can go out and have fun now. And then it's as I went on, I was I realized, oh, hang on a second. He, he's not messing. I'm, I'm learning every time I take off. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great attitude to have. It, it keeps you safe. It kept me on my toes a few times. <laughs> and Absolutely, man. So when, when you finished your, your kind of basic training in, in, in the USM, how do you select what aircraft that you're going on to or do you know beforehand? So I got selected to go to INJEPT, Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training, which is where the U.S. and a few partner countries uh, send their pilots to become fighter pilots. So it's a little bit different for that one because I kind of knew I had a good shot at becoming a fighter pilot or a bomber pilot. Um, and so I went through that course. And then towards the end, you kind of you get your score. So they create like a little pie chart and you know all your different check ride scores and everything are all combined into one. And then you put what you want. You put like, you know, first choice F-22, second choice F-35, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so for me, I put first choice A-10. That was the first plane that came to mind. For what me. an airplane. Just a beast. Uh, yeah. So I put that first, uh, I put F-15E second, and then kind of down the list, all the fighters. But um, yeah, I, I wanted to fly the A-10, but they were having wing issues. Um, and so I graduated relatively high in my class, got, got my first, or got to one of my first choices it was actually my second choice, which was the F-15E, so. Brilliant. Yeah, but that's, that's how brilliant. it works. You just rack and stack what you want, so. Now that's cool. And did helicopters cross your mind at any point? Uh, no, I think it was the, um, just the exposure to fighter jets at a young age that just made me kind of intrigued with the fighter jet. I would have, I think it would have been a cool life. Don't get me wrong. Um, they do some awesome stuff, but. Uh, for me, my mind was just more like, I want to go supersonic. <laughs> well, the blades on the helicopter go supersonic, so maybe I should have thought that through. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really the same thing, though, is it? <laughs> I don't know. Are they in the supersonic club? You tell me, Mikey. I don't know. <laughs> they probably say they are. I'd like to think I'm in a supersonic club and flying in helis, but I don't really think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a stretch. At the bar, at the bar, maybe you could pull it off, you know, but... Someone this, knows aviation, they probably won't. won't it's won't like that, that film, My Cousin Vinny. I've never lied to you. I've always told you some form of the truth. So I'll start telling people I went supersonic. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Hey, man, your secret's safe with me. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's between you and me and, you know, thousands of others. <laughs> yeah. And what, what was it like? So you're, you're now put on an F-15, which is, which is absolutely awesome. Um, you must feel like Tom Cruise from Top Gun at this stage. Um, what's it like when you first lined up on the runway in the um, F-15 and shoved the throttles to, to full afterburner? Man, it was... I'm trying to compare it to what it would be like. I, I think it's kind of a surreal experience where every bit of your body is like trying to tell you this isn't natural. This isn't normal. Uh, slow, slow things down. Uh, but then at the same time, the other half of your brain is like, this is the most fun I've ever had. This is the most incredible experience ever. Stop, go, stop, go. And you're just like, oh, I got to go. I got to go. We're going. And then you just kind of get in the moment. But it is hard to get in the moment to just understand that, hey, you have to be thinking of this now. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you kind of see, you know, you, you start to pull up just like you've done the simulator. So you're like, you know the, what the instruments look like, but then you get the ground rush around you of the ground disappearing. And you're just like, oh, this is happening. And then, then it's, it's kind of like your brain is trying to slow things down and your conscious mind is like, no, we can't. Like, let's keep going. Uh, 
And it's just this constant battle until you get more comfortable. And then slowly and slowly and slowly, your brain stops telling you to slow things down and gets on board and says, okay, all right, I guess I don't have a choice. It's like, you know, you're like training and <laughs> training a dog. You're like, Hey man, sit, sit, you know, you're telling your brain to sit. So, and then if you, if you think of a cross crotch rocket acceleration, um, it's a little less than that. There's more like torque, I think in like initial acceleration in a crotch rocket, um, like motorcycle. Um, mm. but then once you, once you get away from the ground in a fighter jet and you get the gear up and you get clean, then it, it just acceleration happens like that. Uh, and so I would say from around a hundred and 30 knots to like 400 bills, it happens super quick. And, wow. and it's just a weird sensation because you're used to being in a car on the ground when that type of acceleration happens. And then when it happens in the air, you just, it ruins every other sports car for the rest of your life. <laughs> well, so I've seen videos um, and we've got the Eurofire Typhoon over here that does lots of displays and air shows. And Usually when it's it's finished uh, doing a display, it flies down just because we're not like a supersonic here over land. So it does just under Mach 1 and then stands on its tail and just goes straight up. And I've seen videos of the F-15, the F-22, F-16s doing it all as well. And it's literally a couple of seconds and he's calling out the heights and he's leveling out at 15 odd thousand feet within three, four, five seconds. Yeah, that's amazing, man. It's the thrust to weight ratio on those zero fighters is really good. So, uh, I mean, just a cool, what, what, what engineering, right? Like what amazing engineering to create something that can do that. And awesome. then, then you just find someone crazy enough to sit inside it and then you got the right combination. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we're here today. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> and what was, the, I, I take it you, you then did deployments, um, on, on the F-15. I did. Yeah. Uh, Afghanistan, uh, Bagram airfield. Uh, so I flew 70 combat missions there wow. and, uh, yeah, it was great to be able to go serve and do, do what I had trained to do. That's so cool. And it, is there a mindset as well? I think you, you've done all the training. Is there a different mindset knowing that you, you've done it thousands of times, but in training, but this time it, it's for real. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, for me, my biggest thing before I went on my deployment was, you know, kind of what I told you earlier was the reason why I wanted to go was to help bring my friends home, help bring Americans home, help bring our coalition partners home to their families. Uh, that was something that was important to me. You know, I wanted to help people, good people come back to their families. And so knowing that, you know, you, if you make a mistake, you misplace one decimal point, one number, you could drop a weapon on a friendly, you know, someone who's friendly. Mm -hmm. uh, I just didn't want to live with that. I obviously didn't want to put a family through that. And so uh, it was, it was game time, man. And I, I would associate it with, it's kind of like your body and your brain are in full afterburner the entire time. You know, like the, one of the deployments was seven months and it's kind of like you wow. know, for seven months, you're just, you're, you're running as fast as you can. Like you're in a marathon or more of like a, you're sprinting for seven months because your brain never really slows down because you know the stakes are so high. So I don't think it's an environment that you should stay in for long periods of time. I think the shorter, the better. Uh, but, you know, it, it was very clear to me prior to going that it would be intense, but I don't think I really understood it until I came back. And 
I think it's, you know, it was, it was essentially about a similar recovery process, seven months of, I, I would sleep three, four hours a night, maybe max, but I wouldn't be tired. I would just be, I, I would want to work out. I would want to go exercise or, or go fly or something like that. Obviously it's not sustainable. And then after that, like recovery time of coming back, it was kind of like I crashed and wanted to sleep for 12 hours a day, every day, <laughs> but <laughs> Um, yeah, the stakes were high and I think your body and brain know it and you feel it. Well, I take my hat off to you for that. Cause it's, it's, again, it's an environment. People think I'll oh, just fly an airplane, your, your brain's going and then you're flying an airplane at really, really fast speeds. Um, with that added pressure of, of making sure the decimal point is in the right place. So yeah, well yeah. done. I was fortunate too. I had a, a WISO, a weapon systems operator in the back. Oh, okay. And so a lot of time, you know, it's so good to be able to, in the F-15E, there's two, there's two, there's a pilot and then there's a weapon systems operator. And so the weapon systems operator is more focused on uh, air to ground. So more like, hey, how's the air to ground radar working, targeting pod. So that way, you know, I'm focused on the 20,000 foot mountains outside while they're doing a lot of the beeps and squeaks in the back. So it's kind of the perfect combination of a combat platform, in my opinion. And it does take some stress off because you are double checking each other. You're seeing where the weapon's going to go. You're seeing where the friendlies are. And, you know, instead of trying to do that while you're flying, uh, it was really cool to be able to have someone up there to help. So that took a little bit of the stress off. But a lot of times, too, when you're deployed, it's not the flying. It's, you know, you're sleeping in a shipping container when there's mortars dropping around you. And, you know, you're just lucky that you don't get hit by them. So it's your brain is in fight or flight mode a lot of the time. And mm -hmm. then. To me, honestly, being in the jet was my safe place. I was like, this is where I feel the safest. Absolutely. You know, you're not, you're not kind of a sitting duck target on the ground at one of these bases. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting to think of that the, the jet was where I was absolutely, I'd rather be in the jet. I could stay up there and sleep up there. <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't figured that one out yet. No, I was going to say, you guys do do a lot of aerial tankers though, don't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I was actually, when I was on the Thunderbirds, we did uh, the RIA, the Royal Air Tattoo in 2017, I want to say. Yeah, I think it was 2017. But yeah, going over there, I think it was 11 refuelings. Wow. Because we don't have, so you can see, you can see in this, you can see this background I have up, right? Yeah. Uh, there's no external tanks. And so we wouldn't load external tanks on these F-16s. So it's just clean F-16s. Didn't carry a lot of gas. You had to stay topped off the entire time, essentially, in case your port broke for refueling. That, and that way you could still make it to a divert airfield. You wouldn't have to eject out over the ocean. So 11 times, man, and you are like dripping sweat at the end of each one because it, it's just not easy. It's, it's, there's a lot going on. I can imagine. I was going to say, when the Red Arrows went to the States, they always go up over um, Greenland and stuff like that, and they're, they're stopping. Did you guys do that nonstop, just just tankered the whole way tankered the whole way yeah i think we left out of boston and tankered all the way there there was uh we took one tanker halfway uh, and then that tanker turned around and another tanker met us halfway over the ocean that took off from europe and then so we had two so we just you know went with the second one um you know the other <laughs> just funny thinking about everyone in the tanker you know they're taking shifts they're taking turns uh, they're, you know, going back, having a latte and a biscotti and, uh, you're, <laughs> you know, you're like, just, ah, oh, get me out of this cockpit. It's so such a small space, but I mean, you know, we don't do that very often. So that's yeah. the, 
that's where the trade-off is just a few times a year we're across the pond or something like that so that's really cool but we'll come back to the thunderbirds in a second there's one thing i need to ask you about is is supersonic going supersonic what's that like for the first time that you do it uh so the first time i did it i was in a t38 and it was a t38 built in like the 1960s so i was like is this thing going to hold up? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so a part of you is like, you know, you're thinking of the airframe that you're going supersonic in uh, and its capability to do that. Um, but the first time was, it was very interesting because I thought there would be some, I'd hear a boom or there'd be some big event or something like that. But uh, as soon as you see, you're looking in the heads up display and you see 0.97, 0.98, 0.99, 0.99, Point nine nine because there's, there's like a little bit of a I, I guess I'd call it like a little bit of a bow wave or barrier to get through to get to supersonic so you're kind of like okay waiting 0. 0.99 0.99 1.0.01 yes we did it you know um, but what I noticed is you kind of punch through that little bit of resistance whatever that little air resistance is and then it's kind of quiet like it, it, to me I would I would hear the engine noise just regularly flying around but when you go supersonic I do think there's some anomaly or phenomenon that happens where that sound, since it's being pushed behind you mm. and you're encapsulated in the cockpit, that that sound becomes a lot less apparent and you don't really hear the engine noise. You hear more of like what would be like a wind rush type sound. So instead of getting louder, it actually gets quieter, which is wow. interesting. Yeah. That's so cool. And can you maneuver at them speeds or is it just straight and level? Yeah, you can. There are certain restrictions on on how you can maneuver uh, because essentially you don't want to be pulling G's and then go underneath that that kind of resistance bow wave. It'll put weird forces and different forces on your aircraft, which it's not meant for. But you can you can move around, you can do some, you can turn, you can do, but but it is limited. It's it's mm-hmm. definitely more limited. So you wouldn't want to pull a whole bunch of G's at that speed to do that. Yeah, I think that it is a high G when you're at that speed for anything you do, or is it just kind of two, three G? I think it, it, it could turn into high G. Let's say you're in, in a long distance uh, beyond visual range fight. Uh, you want to go supersonic to fire weapons, and then you want to get out of there as fast as you can. So you wouldn't necessarily want to shoot your weapons and then do some big turn radius to get out of there to maintain low g you'd probably want to slow down as soon as you could get underneath one g and then turn and basically just get out of dodge as fast as you could with you know whatever your airframe can do eight nine g's or whatever wow so yeah and so moving on then from that you've, you've done the supersonic you've done the deployments when did you start looking towards the thunderbirds um, you know, it kind of came out of nowhere. So I did the deployments uh, when I uh, during my first assignment with the F-15E, and uh, I got a second assignment to be in an operational squadron. So I started out in North Carolina. My second operational assignment, I got sent to Idaho, up in the Pacific Northwest area, and uh, I had been there for about a year and a half, and I was looking into going to do a exchange tour with the Australian air force and fly Hornets. And I was like, man, that sounds awesome. Um, and then my boss came to me one day and he's like, Hey, you know, this, it's just not going to work out. There's someone with a little more experience that is going to get this over you. I was like, okay, no worries. And he's like, have you thought about applying to this though? 
to the Thunderbirds and I was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, so that kind of put it on my radar. And I also had a few friends from my first operational assignment that we deployed to Afghanistan together that were on the team at that time. So uh, two people actually were on the team at the time. And then my boss brought it up. He was a former Thunderbird. And I was like, huh, interesting. Um, I can tell you the story behind that a little more if you want. Or we can Yeah, yeah, you please, please. That's what we're here for. We're here to tell you your story. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, so it's probably not a traditional route, which is why I kind of like telling people because um, I think it's a good thing for us all to keep in mind is that, you know, there are rules out there, but, you know, as a pilot and as a fighter pilot, you know, there's ways to, if you can bend the rules and not hurt anyone and actually help people, then maybe, you know, you should be thinking a little bit disruptive, but disruptive in a positive way. So that's kind of the, 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 the overarching foreshadowing behind my story. But um, going into it, uh, I wasn't, you know, the favorite of the base commander. Who, and the base commanders of, in the U.S. Air Force are kind of the ones that sign off on these special assignments, like that Hornet to Australia or like going on to the Thunderbirds especially would be they kind of want to send their chosen one which i get you know it's the person that's ranked the highest uh the person that maybe has the best ability to get promoted and and that kind of stuff um the person who's maybe at work a long long time um for me i was never really quite that guy i was i was the guy who would be really good at my job i always tried to hold my own and make sure i had the skills to go into combat make sure i had the skills to bring everybody home in combat and make sure that, you know, in a dog fight, I would always, you know, be a challenge. Uh, wouldn't be an easy kill. Uh, so <laughs> that was my goal. Uh, but I wasn't the guy who was sitting in the vault studying for 15, 16 hours, uh, volunteering for every single extra duty. No, I wanted to have a personal life. I wanted to have friends. I wanted to build a community. I wanted to, you know, be a dynamic person, have more than just the military going on in my life. And so I think that kind of made me not on the list to be the, the chosen child, you know, of the, the base commander. Uh, so I put in my name for the Thunderbirds. Boss came back to me a couple weeks later. He's like, ah, it's not going to work out, man. Like, sorry, you know, there's this other guy. He's ranked higher. And he was honest about it. He's like, you know, just he's going to get the push. Uh, you're not. I was like, cool. I was like, hey, you know, all good. Um, I'm loving my life. Flying F-15s here in, in Idaho. We'll, we'll just keep doing that. And uh the Thunderbirds sent out an email two weeks later to, every, to all of us who had, a, who had initially applied. And they said, hey, we didn't get enough qualified candidates who we think we want to invite to come to the team. If you, if you have even the idea of wanting to be a Thunderbird, just send us an email, which is totally unprecedented. But see, but here's the thing. And I think this has changed and gotten better. But it's not always the person who has the most book smarts that is the best for a position like the Thunderbirds or like, like other things in the civilian world in civilian aviation, you know, you want someone who can talk to people. You want someone who, um, you know, maybe isn't like the most arrogant, cocky top gun type person. I mean, top guns cool, but there's a time and a place for that. And we need those types of personalities like Maverick and Iceman, but do you want them out there? Like, you know, meeting and greeting with people and trying to inspire people? Maybe not. Like, (laughs) I mean, maybe not. And so there's just a different breed of person, but the flying is also, also obviously a big part of it. You got to be really good. You have to have a good, good stick and rudder skills and all that. But they essentially didn't get anybody that they thought they would get along with because you're on the road 250 days a year. 
uh, you're all in the same little room. You know, it, it can get very, very bad if you have a bad apple. Um, it, can, it can just make it miserable for everybody. So anyway, that came out and they were like, hey, uh, a friend of mine who was on the team had said that the whole team had agreed that they just wanted people who maybe had some soft skills that weren't noticed by the mainstream bureaucracy of the Air Force. And so he's like, dude, throw in your, throw, in an, throw us an email, send us your application. Uh, and they did that to a few different people that they thought might have the, the, the right combo of social skills and flying skills and the ability just to get along with people. And so um, threw it in and then lo and behold, I get the call to come to the semifinals. Uh, semifinals is a, is a week long interview where you go to an air show, you sit with the team, you talk to people, you get interviewed on you know different news outlets you do a lot of facebook lives and stuff like that uh and then you do interviews with the team you do interviews with generals etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and i just had a blast I had a, I had a great time um doing that super fun um go back home week later uh my boss kind of walks into the office the guy who had told me that you know you, it's not going to work out for you and he's like hey man you got invited to the finals so hey. i was like Sweet. All right. Cool. Uh, here we go. It's good. To, you know, I'm just going to go have fun again. So same thing. You go to another week of uh, an air show interviews, meeting people, going to hospitals, high schools, all that stuff. And then you have a, your last interview is the entire Thunderbird team. So it's eight, I think eight of them. And then you on the other side of the table and they're just like peppering you with questions. No uh, pressure. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, they're kind of like, hey, if you can't handle this, how are you going to handle flying two and a half feet away from me, you know, 100 feet above the ground at 500 knots? So you got to be able to handle that, you know, that kind of pressure. So uh, did that, did a few more meetings with generals, just kind of asking you, you know, why you want to do this? Um, you know, because there's some people that honestly, they want to do it for their ego. Uh, and, you know, obviously, and that, that could be a part of it for everyone, right? Yeah. Like we all have an ego, but uh, if that's your main driving force, you're probably going to be that person that no one wants to be around. So mm -hmm. they kind of try to see if that's, you know, <laughs> why you're doing it. And they kind of pull that out through all these different interviews. Uh, so go to the, ha have a great time at the finals. Uh, and then a couple weeks later, I'm walking through my squadron in Idaho and the big base commander, uh, you know, the big man on campus, he walks in, uh, he's like a Colonel, an, an 06. And he's like, Hey, Neo, come here. And Neo's my call sign. And he's like, um, have a seat. And I got like, sit down. I'm like, this is kind of awkward. Like, what, what is going on right now, dude? And he's like, so you applied to the Thunderbirds. But, but see, he didn't push me. He wanted his other guy to get it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of got it through a back channel wild card round. Uh, which is kind of unprecedented. Yeah. Um, but he looks kind of cheeky and he's just like, he's like, well, you beat the system. You're the newest Thunderbird for the U S air force. I was like, what? I was like, no way. Like I wanted to hug the guy, but he was not, he was not a hugging type of guy. <laughs> he was an old crusty Colonel, but he, he kind of tipped his hat to me of like, Hey, you know, nice job. But at the same time, he couldn't say that he was happy for me. Yeah. yeah. Like he was like, are you excited about this? I was like, absolutely. He was like, good deal. And then he just like shook my hand and walked out. Didn't never talk to me again. Wow. <laughs> yeah yeah but then it then it began that incredible adventure for three years of having a platform to inspire people man and it, it, there's nothing like it you know being able to 
encourage people and just kind of tell them things that maybe they haven't heard before about what they can achieve, what they can accomplish. But we can get more into that later. That's that's my long story, but I think it's worth telling. I think it's worth yeah. your hearing that, you know, sometimes people are going to tell you no, and sometimes it really means no, and, and you can try all you want. It's not going to work out, but you just kind of keep the attitude of you want to contribute. You want to, you know, help make people better. And, and that was something I don't think I added on, even though I wasn't the guy who was in the vault studying and knowing all these beeps and squeaks, you know, 16 hours a day, I was decent at it. I had a, a good technical understanding. Um, but then I always took care of the people around me. I was yeah. always wondering what can I do to help people? So someone, someone had a kid that was sick, I would take over for them and fly their flight or something like that. So they could go home to their wife and kid and they would repay me by, you know, sticking up for me down the road. And it was just this, this unbending desire to make sure that I was there for my peers. And I think that that people pick up on that. They notice it. And it's probably why those two guys that were on the Thunderbirds invite told me to apply because during our deployment, I was, I was always the guy that people could count on, you know, to be there when, when people needed me to be there. Brilliant. That's such a cool story. And it's like you said, sometimes no means no, but sometimes no means hang on five minutes and then we'll start again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It just, it might just mean, okay, you know, at least you got to know, at least you're in a position for someone to tell you, no, that means yeah. that you had a shot. <laughs> you know? It goes back to that kind of old saying of, if you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in general aviation, you know, if you want an opportunity or, you know, in a business that you're creating, if you want an opportunity, you know, you've got to, you've got to put yourself out there. You've got to try. And your first no should, you can't stop at your first no. You, you got to at least try again. And that's what I always tell people is, you know, the first no is just a sign that you're on the right track. Now, if you start to get 20 no's or whatever, then maybe you need to take some signs from the universe that there's a different path for you. But, um, you know, I think that people's initial reaction is to tell you no, because it's, it's easier than saying yes. Mm. So, yeah, I can, I completely get that. And it's like going back. I don't know if, if you were ever a fan of the Harry Potter books, um, but written by JK Rowling and, and she was told no something like 50 odd times before um, a book finally got approved to be published and, and now look at it. It's absolutely massive. So that goes back to that as well. 50 times on. Huh? There's something ridiculous wow. like that. It was, it was yeah, yeah, a lot of times. It's a great example. It's a great example. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 it's mad. And then, so you've, you've been accepted on the team. Uh, I think I saw one of your TikToks. You said there's no flying exams or anything like that. So is there, because you're coming off an F-15, is there any kind of conversion onto an F-16 or are you just told to jump in that jet and go and do it? I wish. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I'd love that challenge. Hey, uh, show us what you can do. <laughs> um, but no, it, so it, it was a uh, transition course, which was super fun. Uh, they send you down to, I, I did mine in New Mexico, but it's usually in the Southwestern United States. Um, Tucson, or uh, Tucson does some training. That's in Arizona. I did mine in Albuquerque, uh, outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico, a little town called Alamogordo. Uh, really fun. You just jump in this F-16 and it's a gray F-16. It doesn't look like this. It's a you know trainer F-16 that you just do all the fun stuff. So <laughs> you get to do like the basic fighter maneuvers, the BFM, a lot of the handling, do a lot of like dog fighting, um, air combat maneuvers, which is two versus one, um, low altitude bomb dropping, uh, strafing, getting to shoot the gun, uh, aerial refueling. So, and you're doing this all like in this beautiful desert landscape in New Mexico. It's just really charming and 
kind of a romantic experience if you can you can kind of relate as a pilot to think of what it would be like to get a new plane all right your whole goal is just to go learn to fly this plane for this next two months uh that's it you know i know you're, you're gonna do some academics but mainly we just want you to get inside this plane and show us that you can fly it and so you do it for two months and then you get a check right at the end just to make sure you're good um something interesting with this f-16 is it's got one engine right and i'm used mm. to the two engines of the f-15e so you lose an engine hey no big deal um just you know push the other one up a little bit you'll be good because <laughs> <laughs> uh, the engines on those things are just beasts but uh, it was an interesting experience thinking of okay i got one engine here uh, luckily i got an ejection seat still which is great but you learn how to do these patterns over top of the airfield where you know if you lose an engine you need to come in at a certain altitude and then hit certain checkpoints of airspeed and altitude to then safely land this thing with zero thrust. Turning an F-16 into a glider, as you can imagine, is something that goes against nature. So you really have to be able to, to tone in and learn how to fly that plane and, and move it in a way where you don't lose energy. You know, move it in a way where your airspeed is exactly like in between a five knot window um, at 10,000 feet over the field. Uh, adjacent to the field and then at like a thousand feet you know just part of the threshold you have to just shack these five knot air speeds and altitudes wow. but kind of fun but but also kind of intimidating you i know, can imagine because the f-16 looks really slippery um and and when you have to hit five knot differences that must be really tough to do in in that beast it is, especially at first. Eventually then, you know, you, you learn the sight picture and you're more aware of yourself, you know, spatially oriented to the runway. So then it becomes a little, little bit better. And obviously having a little bit of extra speed is, is, is okay, but it can also push you past the point, you know, past the runway and you'll mm -hmm. land way too long. Uh, and you know, that's not going to be good either if you go off the end of the runway. Uh, so yeah. It is important to hit the speeds, but you get better and better at it as your sight pictures improve. Brilliant. That's so cool. I, I, I didn't realize you could fly an F-16 in that little kind of windows as, as in five knots. That, that, that's really cool to learn. So you, Very you've responsive. done... Very responsive, yeah. It, it seems... I was I follow him, is, is it Rain, uh, on uh, Instagram. I think he was a display yeah. pilot on the F-16. And some of the stuff he yeah. was doing with that machine is just unbelievable. Yeah, his videos are awesome. He's got some great over-the-shoulder air show videos. They're they're really cool. I love the stuff as well. You see people standing on, on the ground or by beside the runway, and he just comes along at 10, 20 feet, this 9G turn straight over and the noise, the roar of it. And it, it yeah, it's just just mad. And I, I guess you you got to do lots of that. Yeah, yeah, I did. My a lot of mine was in formation, but I uh, definitely did some single ship as well. Uh, I remember doing some cross countries or just transferring aircraft from one spot to another. And we'd always try to use these tax dollars to inspire people and show people, you know, their military and showcase our abilities. And so sometimes just going from point to point, we'd find a place to drop down and show people these jets, uh, kind of a bit of an impromptu, uh, but also strategically planned to where we would be along a lot of people. So a lot of the beaches on the East coast, you know, I remember going from, um, New York down to New Jersey. So quick, quick trip, but we just tied in a beach tour where we went along the beach, did knife edge passes along the beach back and forth with the smoke on just to show wow. people. Board. 
and you know advertise for the air show um but getting to show people that that close i think is something that's really really special so uh that was that's definitely one of the coolest parts of these demo teams whether it's you know rain on the f-16 demo team or the thunderbirds or the blue angels or whatever it's get to kind of like again it kind of goes back to that license to steal Mm -hmm. um you know you you get exceptions because you are very highly trained you know you do have so much time uh practicing and training and we have a on the Thunderbirds, you have to fly six flights in a week. Uh, and so you have to have these uh, checkpoints met every week uh, or you have to just make up for them and go through little check ride type scenarios. But, you know, when you're flying 50 feet away from down, you know, the skyscrapers in downtown Chicago, they, they got to know that you're going to put the jet where it needs to be put. And I can remember doing a, a pass next to one of the skyscrapers and I looked into like a boardroom uh, I'm like looking out the top of the canopy and there's like a boardroom of this guy and he has like his coffee and he's just watching me and he had this look of like what are you doing here and I was like what are you doing here like you know? and in my head he's just like I was you know I'm trying to give a presentation bro but but thank you this is really cool so good so, yeah. awesome absolutely awesome good times man good times when you, you talk about as well being able to like put the jet right place, they want to know um, can can the jet be put in the right place, everything like that. Is there parts where you're doing this for the first time? I think I've seen it in one of your TikTok videos where you call it swapping paint. Um, th- does that happen regularly on newbies or even on, on any training or display? Yeah, it, it's not very common. It's not like kind of like bumper cars where, ah, okay, you know, uh, we swapped paint again today. Um, what what I noticed is maybe every couple of years, there, there's some paint that's swapped, I would say. Um, and a lot of times it can be from someone who maybe is going through the initial training at the very beginning. And they're just, like I said, we don't have a flying test prior okay. they look at your record and they see okay like they looked at my f15e record and they looked at my check rides hey how did this person do on their check rides are they essentially getting really high scores on these because it's just a representation if you can do that in f15e it's been proven you can do that in a f16 but uh you go to the team with without having shown that you can fly the f16 so your first five months or so are super intensive, sometimes twice a day sorties where you're starting out wide and you're getting closer and closer and closer for the diamond. Or if you're a solo pilot, you do, you do similar uh, getting closer stuff, but you do a lot of single ship maneuvers as well. And so that's your first time really proving your metal, showing that you can do it. And so with, I think specifically some of the diamond pilots and maybe some of the solos uh, towards the end of their training season is you see if someone is afraid of it and, mm-hmm. and, you know, like there's no judgment, like it's not normal to fly a fighter jet, first of all, but second of all, to fly a fighter jet, you know, sometimes two and a half feet from the other aircraft. And so it can bring out some inner um, insecurities uh, because you never feel like you're doing well. Uh, it can make you, yeah, it can just make you feel like you suck. Uh, and that, you know, think, take someone who's been a, you know, top of their game on every single thing they've done, uh, um, you know, strong personality, they suck and they have to, re- it's going to take them a long time to get better at it. They can cause some uh, attitude issues 
And you combine that with the high stakes flying and you can definitely have people that hit. And the last person I heard of that hit actually didn't stay on the team. They left because it was, okay, this is a sign of maybe some safety issues that would happen later. But it's more close calls too than, than actually swapping paint because we have techniques to avoid the paint swap. Um, but these, I can't, I can't go into this elaboration on TikTok, right? So I just have to say on TikTok, like, hey, yes, paint swaps can happen, you know, blah, 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 blah. This is my 12 seconds, you know? So yeah, it's yeah. cool to be able to explain it that, um, you know, we have outs. So we have ways that, you know, if you see a position happening, like I remember, and this probably happens a lot. And then this is, and this didn't hit on this person whatsoever. Uh, but I'm training them and I'm in the, uh, we do uh, at the beginning, I'm in the back seat. We do, a, we have a couple D model F-16s on the Thunderbird. So you can train them from the back seat. And I'm in the back seat while he's trying to get this roll down. And on, when you're Thunderbird 2, you have to roll inside, which means you rudder into and push slight negative G um, to get underneath and then stay on the pendulum of the diamond. And so it's a very awkward sensation. Mm -hmm. And if you get high, so if you're, if you get high here, you can get into a position where you're canopy to canopy with a jet on top of you. And you really have nowhere to go except a lot of negative G's to get out of there. And so um, we have a picture that we see that if a picture starts to develop where you're kind of in a V like this, like if this is number two, I know it's hard for your viewers to see this since it's a podcast, but Essentially, if you're forming a V with the formation with one jet high on the other jet, as this as the inside jet's rolling into the outside jet, you can hit canopies. I mean, kill each other. Mm -hmm. So there there has to be a sight picture that you see that goes danger, danger, danger. Get out of here. And so I remember that happened. And so I just went full left rudder away, and while I'm slightly pushing, and you know we bottomed out at like 80 feet above the ground, Whoa. but at least we didn't hit the other jet or the you know or the ground. But, you know, I, I think so I'm going full rudder away, pushing negative G's to get away from the formation. And then both hands, you know, snatched to nine G's to get away from the ground. Um, and we didn't hit the ground or the other guy, luckily. But those are more common than swapping paint because of, you know, that danger, danger, danger sight picture. But that doesn't mean you're going to be safe or survive. It just means that you're not going to hit the airplane next to you. But now you got to deal with the ground. Mm. The ground probably I'm more I'm way more scared of the ground than the other airplanes wing, but you know it's it's different little strategies built in to keep you from swapping paint that typically mean you don't. Um, yeah. but it doesn't mean that it's safe. It's yeah, the margins yeah. for error are still very, very low. I mean when you said that you you did that and buttoned down like 80 feet, what height are you going into these maneuvers or what what, what typically would it display height look like um it so they stepped down and down and down um but i think for that one we probably would have entered it at like 800 feet wow, above the okay. ground or so but then the guilt the goal with that roll is to then roll out at at our minimums which whatever that is and it steps down and down and down but that minimum that day was probably like 500 foot minimum something mm -hmm. like that so you're going into it like 800 to 1,000, completing your roll, and then leveling out around 400, 500 feet, something like that. Wow. But it steps down. So as the season continues and progresses, we go down. And these numbers, I, I, I can't recall the exact numbers, but you go down in phases 
to where your last phase, you're somewhere around 150 to 200 feet. Wow, that, that's low. Because I know it's the same with the Red Arrows as well. They do the same thing during training. It's all done up high until eventually, I think it's the uh, synchro pair that are, are cleared down to, to 100, and, I think it's 100 feet, 150 feet. Um, awesome. where they're dropping down in front of you and doing passes and that's why I asked just to see did, did you guys have something similar to that because I can imagine if you're doing that kind of manoeuvre where you have to do that to get out at 150 feet that's there's hardly any room for error there it's yeah luckily at that point in that manoeuvre your nose is kind of high so you're actually gaining a little bit of altitude so it gives you the space to actually do some sort of manoeuvre like that to get out of there um, and, but then later on in the season, when you're actually that low, you've gotten over those whoopsies, you know, that you've gotten yeah. over that point of having, of making that error to where now that error, it, it, not, it should not happen. So, um, yeah, luckily, luckily though, early in the training season, we have that buffer. That's so cool. Um, and then let's go back to supersonic for a second, because you've done supersonic by yourself in an F-15 you're now part of the Thunderbirds. Do you guys ever do like a formation supersonic sortie or is there anything like that? Yes. So we have. And and so to just, so you know I'm not on the Thunderbirds now, right? That I was, that I've currently, I've left the team. I don't know if yeah. they do this every year. Okay. I don't know if they still do this, but luckily I think it depends on the boss you have, whether they are, you know, wanting to do something a little bit more fun or not. And uh, luckily in 2017, actually on our way to Riyadh, um, we went supersonic in formation. So we got our last top off of gas. Uh, we had extra gas to make it into uh, Fairford. And um, we're like, hey, let's just spread out just a little bit more than we normally would. So we just got a little bit of extra spacing because again, the bow waves of that supersonic air mass, you know, I don't know. I don't know exactly what that's gonna do. We don't know what it's gonna do to potentially compressor stalls into the engine, things like that. So we got a little bit of extra spacing and then boom, hit the gas pedal. Um, all six of us supersonic together was one of the wow. coolest things I've ever seen. You just look over and not again, it just kind of gets a little quieter, but you know, everybody's going supersonic and uh, there's a little bit of con type contrails coming off of the jets. It's just, it's just cool, man. <laughs> it was awesome. That's brilliant. Well, one can, of the coolest moments for sure. Can, can you see on the other jets? Cause you know the way if, I don't know if it's the same when you're flying it, but when you're stood on the ground and I think when something goes past the place of sound barrier, you see the barrier around the aircraft, um, a yeah. vapor kind of thing. Can you see that on the other jets also? So you can. I so when I when I was going into the supersonic mode, I was looking forward, you know, making sure all the instruments look good. So I didn't see the other planes. But then when we were coming out of it, I was like, ah, I kind of want to see what's happening over there. And as we were kind of coming out of it, I did see a little bit of like <laughs> like a little bit of like vapors but it wasn't the full shot cone that i think you would see going into supersonic yeah it was just a bit of more of like vapor kind of like twitching on the outsides of the jet but it still looked really cool and it was yeah, yeah. i was looking at i was looking at uh, four other airplanes with it all kind of happening simultaneously as we went underneath the speed of supersonic so uh you can definitely see it next time if there is a next time you know I'm, i i'll uh, i'll ask i'll ask some of my buddies to see if they can see it that'd be so cool it. So, so cool. And so th this leads me on then to another awesome moment. You say that was amazing. Uh, it must have been really cool because you got promoted to the rank of major while airborne with the Thunderbirds. How does that come about? So, I, again, a lot of these things happen based on the quality of your leadership uh, and, and, you know, just 
the ways that people take care of people, it's different from leader to leader. And I was very fortunate. 2017 had one of the best Thunderbird commanders, I think, that that the Thunderbirds have, have, have had as far as taking care of people. And he was like, hey, you're about to get promoted to major. Let's do it up in the air. Uh, do you want to do it in the air? I was like, heck yeah, man, let's do this. So um, yeah, we, we uh, set it up and uh, kind of kind of one of those things, just a way to sort of give back. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was just one of the coolest moments and experiences ever. So being able to do it was was cool, but it was also nice having have my, my friends there. You know, these guys that I've flown, uh, you know, two and a half feet apart with for two and a half years. And, you know, you trust your life with them and all that, you know, to look around and be like, hey, everybody's supporting you and we're proud of you and excited for you. Uh, it's really kind of an inspiring thing. You know, our, our team was all about inspiring other people, but things like that. It just shows no matter what team you are, you're on, no matter where you're at in life, you can always do something a little extra to make someone feel like a part of the team. And they definitely did that for me. And so feeling like, hey, this is a cool like passage ceremony, rite of passage was just made me even more excited about inspiring other people. Uh, but we did it over the Nevada desert, uh, out over our training area, the, you know, the area that's kind of like our octagon, you know, when you think of like MMA fighters, it's kind of like our little octagon where we where we fight. So to be able to be over there, see all this, all the sites and uh, all the things that I'd flown around for years and then get promoted in the air was cool, but it made it even cooler because at the end we did a Bonton roll, which is a formation uh, aileron roll right next to wow. each other, uh, which just made it even more cool, more special. <laughs> That's brilliant. I going back, sticking with Nevada there. I think you guys have star is a star Wars Canyon out there that, that you go low level ripping through. Yeah, there's a few. I think I know there's a. I don't. I'm, I think people call Star Wars Canyon a few different places. There's actually one in Idaho called Star Wars Canyon. Okay. Um, and so I did some flying through that in the F-15E. Um, but uh, cool. yeah, that that was cool. So I thought of that as well when you were saying that you guys do little detours on on the way of, of showing off the jets and passes. And I wondered if you guys had ever taken the the team through through any of them on the way just to show them off. I don't know if we've ever done Star Wars Canyon. I know. So the way that the Thunderbirds work is your first six months, you're training. Then you do about two and a half years of actual flying and shows and that kind of thing. And then you do another four-ish months of instructing to train your replacement. Oh and so while I was training my replacement, you still have, I still had to keep a currency uh, in the F-16. And so a lot of times I would just get a single ship, either a, a single seater to go out and fly, or I'd get a... Um, a D model, a twin seater, and I'd go flying with our doctor, our team doctor, just put him in the back, just to give him some flight experience. And we'd go out over um, the, yeah, it was Death Valley. So we'd go, there's like a mountain range before Death Valley and it's called the Sierra Nevadas. And so we'd go fly over the Sierra Nevadas and there's these, all these, all these like pull-offs where people are looking over the, over Death Valley and Death Valley itself is protected. So you have to stay 2000 feet above it. But the mountain range in front of it that looks over Death Valley is not protected. And there's just like dozens, dozens of these pull-offs where there's just like, you know, hundreds of cars sometimes at each one of these pull-offs looking over the desert. Um, and so we'd come around these areas, you know, and then tap the afterburner over top of these things or put the smoke on. Um, there's another area where there's like these big sand dunes. And again, it's protected in certain parts, but there's other parts where it's not. Uh, and so there'd be big Jeep conventions for people out four wheeling and things like that. Uh, and so I'd always say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to make their, their Jeep convention even more badass." And then we'd just come over the top of them with smoke and just, just show people what their tax dollars are going towards, you know, some of the, 
the best fighter jets in the world. So um, I think it's important to, to, to utilize, you know, I could have just gone up and done circles in the sky during that time, but I was like, no, I want to inspire someone to go do something awesome today. So that, that was always my goal. And there's always that element of fun for yourself as well. And if you've got a doctor in the back to be like, oh, watch this. Um, and then you, because you, I, I find myself, I love flying that um, low level. Um, and th- there's, there's no kind of rush better than it. So you guys getting to do that at cover, covering what, seven miles a minute or something like that is just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, it is, man. It's, it's fast. So for you, when you do your low levels, uh, how do you, how do you decide where to go? Or do you just kind of go where, so we, we've got a rule over here in, in, in the UK where you have to be uh, 500 feet away from uh, an obstacle place or a person. So you, we, we usually go out to um, where I fly from is, is proper Battle of Britain skies. Um, so we're actually based on the south coast of England and we'll pop out there and go out to sea a little bit um, okay. and fly along the cliff edges. Um, and then do you can do whatever you want then out there, out there once you're 500 foot away from people and stuff like that uh, which is quite awesome. cool because you, you can fly along we've done it a few times now where you've flown along um, and you're looking up at the white cliffs that they would have seen when they come back for dog fights in the world war ii so cool uh, so awesome. kind of a, a note on that is i when i was in uh, seymour johnson north carolina i was in a royal eagle squadron uh the 334th uh was the squadron that i trained in and then the 335th was a squadron i went to combat with but um, in the Battle of Britain, all those big battles we, when American fighter pilots would go over and because initially we were isolationists, obviously, you know that uh, yeah. during World War Two. And then when we before we officially decided to go into the war, we started sending fighter pilots over to help uh, the UK. And uh, these pilots came from these squadrons, the 335th. And so to this wow. day, we still wear uh, a patch uh, that has like the King of England on it. Um, and it says Royal, it's a Royal Eagle, Royal Eagle Squadron, but it's obviously a U.S. fighter squadron. But the history of it's really cool uh, that, that, you know, brave, brave Americans went over to fight with, with, you know, brave pilots from the U.K. and, and fight, fight evil, you know. It's, and it kind of is a bit of an air of rebelliousness of like, yeah, we're isolationists, but, um, you know, our fighter pilots are not. Yeah, I like that. That's cool. I've, I've read um, a couple of books. Jeffrey Wellam's book, uh, First Light, where he was um, the youngest uh, Spitfire pilot in the Battle of Britain, um, and he talks about uh, doing stuff with the, with the Americans and flying the P fifty one and everything like that as well. And then you had Eric Winkle Brown, um, who flew everything um, effectively from World War. He even had took up one of the uh, Me two six twos, which was the Jet uh, Messerschmitt. Um, after after the war, uh, they sent him up as a test pilot to go and, go and play with that. There's some fabulous books, and I highly recommend them um, if you, if you get a chance. Awesome, uh, but yeah, that's what a really rich cool. History. What a cool oh, history! You know, it's our, amazing, our and wow. it's like yeah. that getting getting to come over or getting to go and go and play with that kind of stuff. And like you said, get to fly with that squadron um, that has that kind of links to it is is brilliant. Totally, couldn't agree more. So you've you're you're out of active service now. I take it if you if you're in the reserves. Yeah, I'm in the reserves. I do a little bit of consulting type work, mentorship work for the Air Force, but I don't. Uh, I'm not a fighter pilot for the Air Force anymore. I'm just flying commercially now. That's cool. So what what made you finish up um, with, with with the Air Force essentially? Mm. Yeah, it was a tough decision. I think it was it was hard to to kind of walk away a bit where the air force was kind of handing, they hand a lot of the Thunderbirds, you know, promotions and, 
opportunities have been on a silver platter uh, to say thank you for, you know, all that time where you're, you know, away from your family. Not that it's hard in, in the fact that you're doing awesome stuff, but you are it's essentially like three deployments because you're gone so much during those three years. But um, you're deployed to amazing places, right? So don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that it compares to an actual combat deployment, but the Air Force is kind of like, hey, that's a lot of time. Uh, we're going to give you some cool opportunities. Uh, so they were going to send me to go to a college and get a degree in, in uh, some type of security studies. So it was an amazing opportunity and it was hard to walk away from it. But I think I had also accomplished the things that I'd wanted to accomplish when I told you, you know, as that, as that young guy who wanted to go do his part, um, you know, patriotic, grateful. Um, I wanted to, to go fly in combat if I could. Uh, I wanted to be a leader and take care of people. And I never thought I would have the chance to be a Thunderbird. That wasn't even on my radar. I never had thought of that. That was like totally next level. So I looked at it and I was like, wow, I've achieved the things I want to achieve. Um, very grateful for it. I've met, you know, people that'll be the friends, friends for the rest of my life. Uh, but now I kind of want a life where I have a little bit more freedom, a little bit yeah. more opportunity to pursue some of my other passions, which aviation will always be a passion, always. Um, I was a film major in college. I wanted to get back into film production. Uh, so I've started a YouTube channel. I do the TikTok thing. Uh, and I love entrepreneurship. So I, I wanted to start my own business as well. Love these varied interests. And then on top of that, having the ability to have a personal life, uh, hopefully one day have a family. These things are attractive to me. And I saw the writing on the wall where some, some people are really, really good at, at doing all these things and being a fighter pilot in the Air Force. There are people that do. Um, but I'm not at that level. I'm not that smart. <laughs> like I need to, I, I can multitask, but um, there's a point where I think multitasking for me becomes detrimental and it's just too much. And so yeah. trying to do all these other interests while being a fighter pilot, I just, I wasn't gonna be able to make it happen. We only live once. Uh, I want to look back and, and have no regrets. So I just made a personal decision that allows me to have no regrets. Um, but it was hard because the Air Force is, is awesome. And I think if anybody's thinking of joining, you know, military in the UK or, or here in America, it's think of the risks, think of the, uh, the downsides, think of the plus sides. But you know, at the end of the day, you got to make a personal decision. Yeah. You got to make a decision that you're not going to regret. Uh, so I thought it through a lot to answer your question. And I came to the decision that, um, you know, I had, I had done everything I needed to do. I had served and, and I'm proud of what I had done. And now I was ready to move on and serve in other ways. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, and the fact that you can walk away and have no regrets. That's one massive thing in life is everyone says, always live your life. You have no regrets. And the fact that you were able to do that is, is another bonus to, to what you've done. Um, but where one thing I find really cool here is as well. So you've run a company called uh, BJ Clean. How did that come about from flying in the Air Force and the Thunderbirds to essentially starting up with, with these, these shower gel products? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. So I, it started during a deployment. Um, and I remember using some products that were just... I don't know, uninspiring, I would say. And, and you know, the pro I, I, don't, I, I don't know how you guys feel in the UK, but here in America, like, um, we want to put our money towards things that, that matter. And we want to feel like the products that we're buying every day while I was deployed with my friends. And I was like, just chatting one day around a fire pit. We'd have a fire pit and we'd sit around it after missions. And we're sitting around it after a mission one day. And I was like, guys, I'm thinking of starting a business. And they're like, okay, what? Uh, and I was like, well, look at this like mainstream shower products. And I had gotten a care package that had it in it and I had it sitting next to me. 
Like I want something that reminds me to be a better version of myself every day. Cause that's yeah. what we're doing. We're trying to be better fighter pilots every day. That's our mindset. And so I was like, well, I'm going to create my own company and my own vision. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. You will. Sure. You will. Um, but I came back to uh, Idaho and one of my backseaters, him and I started the company together and uh, we wanted to make something that inspired people to be better. And wasn't just a way for boardroom suits to make money. And so that's why we started DJ clean. And we wanted a product that was good for the environment, good for your skin. And you know, inspired you to be more of a badass than uh, these other products that made you want to just go into a Miami nightclub. So <laughs> that's why we started DJ Clean, uh, and we we made the first two thousand bottles in my kitchen in Idaho uh, wow. on on weekends in between flying fighter jets. Uh, so it's funny. I'd be like, you know, my Dale was my business partner, and still is. His call sign is is Drift. His last name is Wood, so uh, Driftwood, <laughs> and. Uh, I was like, Hey man, you come over, help me fill shampoo. I'll, I'll pay for dinner and beer. It's all on me. But he's like, dude, what are we, I remember having this moment. We're two fighter pilots. You know, he's a, he's a whizzo, but he's essentially a fighter pilot. And I'm like, did you ever think you'd be filling shampoo bottles in my kitchen, you know, and then flying fighter jets and during the week, <laughs> he was like never in a million years. <laughs> but we sold out, sold out of those 2000 bottles in about three months at different events around Boise, Idaho. And uh, we started an online business. Uh, so bjetclean.com is our business and uh it's it's rocking and rolling and uh yeah hopefully it just keeps growing that's brilliant because that, that's how i found yourself on tiktok actually it was um true true be Jack Lean. um cool. and it's one of these things where it's like oh what's this and you clicked on it and it's yeah and some of the stuff looks amazing oh thanks man yeah we give five percent back to veterans organizations and first responders organizations just things that we we believe in and uh one of them gives uh service dogs to disabled veterans and wow uh, just think again we want to have intention behind the products that we use and we want them to to help people that's brilliant no, fair, fair play to you fair fair play to you so ryan now that you've done all that and that is is what what's what's your plans for the future or what what do you hope to, to do next yeah so uh, i'll be running the company with with dale my business partner that's kind of our big focus right now uh, uh i've also started a youtube channel so ryan bodenheimer is my youtube channel uh, again, I majored in video production in college. Uh, I believe in, in uh, health as far as physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, financial health. And those are things that I try to promote uh, on my YouTube channel. Uh, I believe in telling fun stories, fun aviation stories from you know, my time flying fighter jets. Um, so with, with my YouTube channel, I'm trying to inspire people to live healthier, better lives and create more, more abundance and wealth and success for their families. So the, those two things are kind of my biggest focus right now. And then on the side, I'm flying uh, commercial planes around the world, which is fun. I enjoy that. Uh, so that's kind of my three, my three focuses right now. And, and then also developing a personal life and hopefully having a family one day is kind of the next step that I want to get to. That'd be cool. Ryan, thank you so much for chatting to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Well, thanks to all your viewers for watching. It's been, it's been a blast to, to chat and, I'm excited for your your podcast to grow. Really cool what you're doing. You're inspiring people. So keep going, man. I know there's there's people listening to this that you know their lives are changing because of the podcast. So Mikey, keep it up. Cool. Thank you very very much, Ryan. It's been an absolute pleasure. We hope to talk to you again soon. Sounds good.